Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, delighted that you could join us for what I think is going to be a, a very intriguing show, to be sure. We have an interview with my friend and Hall of Fame ring announcer, Michael Buffer. We're going to be talking to him about um, reminiscing uh, about the great times that he and I had on the Top Rank Boxing Series on ESPN, plus some of the great moments that he's uh, had announcing um, doing the ring announcing for major fights, most of them, many of the major fights in the last uh, 30 years. And um, my affiliation with Michael goes way back, uh, and it'll be, it's going to be fun visiting with him. Also on this show, we are going to take a raft of your questions because you've been sending me questions on Twitter, and um, uh, they are great questions. They're all interesting and fascinating, and we're trying to get to as many as we can, so we're going to talk about those as well. And to help me do all that, my good friend and co-host, Trip Mitchell. Trip, how you doing? I am doing wonderfully now that boxing is back. It is just a great feeling. And I really loved getting a chance to see Michael Buffer again because he is truly one of the most unique characters in the history of boxing. Yeah, Michael's interesting, you know, because and in the interview, as fans will get to see, uh, he kind of talks about the idea of, at the beginning especially, trying to shape this, this uh, what he thought a ring announcer could be, because ring announcing has changed over the years, and he's one of the people that, uh, that changed it significantly in, in the last 30 years. He and Jimmy Lennon Jr., um, uh, and of course, Jimmy Lennon's dad, Jimmy Lennon Sr., was fantastic. But uh, the art of it has changed, and the way we perceive ring announcers has changed. So, um, you know, there's, uh, it's kind of intriguing to hear him talk about that. And just uh, on the outside, listening to you guys talk, he was upset with you that you stopped the interview after 20 some odd minutes. He was throwing up new topics. Yeah, Michael. He, he sent me an email afterwards. He said, oh, I was just having such a good time. I said, yeah, no, because he wanted to continue, which we did for a little while longer. And uh, he was having fun, as, as was I. But, uh, yeah, Michael, Michael enjoyed it, and it was fun to, fun to reminisce. So people are going to get to hear that in a little bit. And before they do that, though, we're going to answer a bunch of their questions. So what do you say? Let's get to it. Okay. Andrew Haywood writes, do you think that the Billy Collins Jr. Luis Resto fight was the worst case of wrongdoing in boxing in all your time having been involved. Absolutely. Um, this was a fight in 1983 in which Luis Resto uh, fought and Billy Collins fought at the Garden. And uh, Billy Collins was an up-and-coming fighter. Resto, a veteran, but a very good fighter. And uh, Panama Lewis was in the corner of Luis Resto. And there was tampering done to the... Uh, the wrappings of Luis Resto, and uh, it ended up causing very, very severe uh, injury to Billy Collins. Uh, and it was tragic because that sent Billy Collins into such a spiral that uh, he ended up uh, dying, uh, you know, not that long after that. And uh, it was a a very, very sad uh, situation. And 
And I think one of the worst ever in boxing. It reprehensible. Uh, doesn't even cover it. Um, and, uh, you know, it led to the banning of Panama Lewis uh, for a long, long time. Um, in my, he has, on occasion, I think, gotten back to work in corners. As far as I'm concerned, he never should have. Um, the ban should have been lifetime. And uh, for the most part, it was. But um, it was just a, a tragic, tragic uh, occurrence. And um, and I agree with the with the writer of the question. Probably the wor one of the worst, if not the worst, that I've seen in my time as uh, as a boxing announcer. So, Al, for our viewers who have never been backstage or behind, the gloves are very important, and members of the commission yeah. watch all that. Can you just give us a quick thumbnail how they, that goes? They do, and it was kind of elaborate the way he managed to to uh, to hide what he was doing, but. They, they have to sign the gloves and they have to sign the wrappings. And so for the most part, these kind of things don't happen. Uh, there was the famous case of uh, a fight in which Antonio Margarito allegedly had that happen when he fought Miguel Cotto uh, and, and his wrappings weren't right. And, and some believe that uh, created um, a problem. Let me amend what, what, uh, what, what Resto's uh, corner did was take padding out of the gloves. I said the wrappings. What I meant to say was the gloves. They took, somehow found a way to take padding out of the gloves. Um, and uh, sometimes those things slip through the cracks. And it's, uh, you know, it doesn't happen that often, but this is a sport where the difference uh, between being safe and unsafe is very thin. Yeah, if just and real quick, uh, do you have a preference on weight of gloves? Do you have something that you think is well, good? Well, they have the, the weight, each you know, the, the weights of the ounces of gloves moves up as you move up in, in weight class. So, um, you know, as you get higher, the, the ounces get go up a little bit because men are hitting harder. And so, I think they have it calibrated pretty well in boxing. Okay, our next question is from a, a would be actor out there who. He's working hard, but I think uh, he might get a break here at any moment. Yeah, he may John be, Cusack. Yeah. John Cusack, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, he might, you know, if he's lucky, he may get himself a movie pretty soon here. Uh, <laughs> now, he is, of course, um, uh, a very talented, brilliant actor and somebody who uh, he and I tweet back and forth all the time. He's a big Cubs fan, which, of course, may, gives me a great kinship with him. And, uh, and he's a big boxing fan. And he asked us a question, did he not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's a serious one that seems a little bit like a joke. Is there ever been a record anywhere of the great Alley ever throwing a body punch? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. And John had to say it seems like a joke, but it's a serious question. Okay, I scoured, you know, I couldn't watch every Muhammad Ali fight uh, between the time we got that question and when we were doing this. Uh, uh, show, but I looked at a whole bunch of them, even ones that people had suggested he might have thrown a body shot. The closest I could come was times when he would throw his jab out there and and use it as a to the chest to use it as a range finder to get the right hand into the head. He literally, you know, one of the the principal punches you use as a body punch is the left hook. And Ali had a good left hook to the head. It wasn't his primary punch, but he could throw it. And he threw it with power and effectively. And almost everybody occasionally will throw a left hook to the body. If you have a good left hook, I mean, by accident, you're going to do that. 
I looked at a lot of video of Muhammad Ali. I could not find one body punch where you where he really was targeting the body. So it's amazing. It may exist in some fight somewhere, but I think John is onto something here. I and of course we know Ali's not a body puncher. It's not something he did. But just finding one or two is 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 really hard. And when you think about that, it's fascinating. So one of the things that is taught to boxers that they do all the time. Um, some people, like I'm the gentleman I'm doing a book with right now, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad, uh, who was mentored by Ali and was good friends with Ali. Body punching is central, was central to his career. Um, and, and yet here's Ali, who, you know, not doing something that, you know, 90% of all boxers are going to do. And yet, obviously, it, it didn't, you know, impact him negatively or, 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 uh, affect his career in any way. So it's pretty crazy. Do you, is Tyson one of those guys who set, used the body to set everything up? Is he one of the well, best Tyson examples? was a good body puncher. Uh, he had a, a couple of, fat, uh, you know, interesting combinations. Uh, he had this one where he'd throw a right hand to the body and then come with a right hook, a right uppercut to the head, which was a, a great, and he did that with his left hand as well. And that was a very effective combination for him. Um, so he, he did like to go to the body for sure. Okay. And another guy used was great body guy. Uh, our next question, MJ Moulton writes, I had great seats to see Roy Jones Jr. in his prime. Before the bell to start, it was an electric atmosphere and my heart was racing. For someone who has seen it all, when was the last time that that level of excitement at a boxing match happened for you? Great question. That was a very good question uh, and, and well put by him. And I think what he's getting at is we're always excited before a boxing match. We're always interested. And uh, when you're there live, you feel the energy. But sometimes it rises to another level for people. And uh, for me, uh, in recent times, uh, and both of these times I was actually working the fight as opposed to just being a, uh, you know, an observer, uh, I can remember when a combination of the anticipation of the fight, the crowd itself, and everything surrounding the fight made me feel that anticipation just before the bell. The first one was a few years ago uh, of, the, of recent vintage, uh, of course. First one was a couple years ago when uh, Anthony Joshua fought uh, Vladimir Klitschko and we televised it uh, on Showtime. And there were 90,000 people at Wembley Stadium. Uh, and that energy, plus the fact that this was a seminal moment in Anthony Joshua's career, and they produced one of the more memorable heavyweight fights of the last 20, 15 years. Um, and I remember just before that bell, feeling the palpable excitement of the moment. Another one, involves yet another uh, con yet contemporaries of, of Anthony Joshua. And that was uh, more recently when I did the first Deontay Wilder-Tyson um, Fury fight. And we had a full crowd there on hand for that one uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, it was, it was so, the, the atmosphere just before that fight was really, really exciting. And and that we had a lot of anticipation about what was going to happen between those two heavyweights. And they produced a fight that created 
enormous drama with that, uh, the two knockdowns by Wilder, the great boxing by Fury and uh, Wilder, you know, or a Fury getting up from the second knockdown like Lazarus or rising from the dead. Uh, so it, both of those fights, I remember having that kind of feeling that uh, MJ is uh, describing there that you just couldn't wait for this to happen. Well, it was interesting. Showtime last Friday night at nine o'clock, I came upstairs and my wife had the Klitschko fight on and she watched every minute of it. Wow. And it, it was amazing. And then they had an aerial shot and it was tight on the ring and it pulls back and you're just amazed by how many people that we, we've talked in the past about fights over 90,000. That has to be the most amazing experience. It was extraordinary. Uh, That's probably the biggest crowd that I've ever been at, you know, been to a boxing match with. And, uh, and it was, it was just extraordinary. The funny thing is I remember I had to find a place. I, uh, uh, my wife's uh, nephew was getting married and she was at the wedding in Cincinnati and I wanted to call them to just say hello. And I had to go find some place within the, 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 you know, the, the balls of this uh, outdoor kind of arena to uh to um or stadium to find a place quiet enough to call them and i ended up in this obscure bathroom far 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 <laughs> i don't even know where i was i could have been practically out of the building where i could finally talk to them because it was so loud and it was so and this was way before the main event but the crowd was so alive with excitement that's fantastic how many autographs did you sign Eighty-seven thousand. You know, there may have been a couple people there that were not desperate to get my autograph, but it was, uh, there are a lot, I do, I do, there are a lot of people in England that I've had the opportunity to touch by working fights over there. I was privileged to do uh, the fights on Channel 5, which is an over-the-air network there, and, uh, uh, and, and that was really fun because I was able to, even though I, Brits and people in the UK have seen other shows I've done, uh, this was my chance to really broadcast to them and uh, with a British broadcasting company. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Well, great. And they don't subtitle you over in the UK, do they? No, I had to, you know, I had to, uh, like, there's a phrase, I had to make sure that I didn't make it baseball references, you know. It's funny how many things are in our lexicon that we realize if you're in another country and you're catering to that audience, it means nothing. Uh, and so, and they also, they have a great phrase over there, uh, Dave Farrar, Fer, Fer, who was doing the play-by-play with me, and he did a great job. He used the phrase, and a bunch of uh, play-by-play announcers in, in Great Britain use it, it's called mini-crisis. Like, if a guy's in trouble, <laughs> I love that phrase. He said, he said, he's in a mini-crisis now, and I loved it. So, of course, by the fifth broadcast, I couldn't resist, and I used that phrase. He started laughing. I said, see, look, I'm, I'm British. So, <laughs> well, our guest today, uh, I asked Michael Buffer before we got started whether he would ever like to do switch places with you. And he said he would love to. It'd be fun for him to be a TV guy for one. Yeah, he's not, I don't think Michael's ever, ever stepped into even uh, any Michael knows boxing. You know, he's he's a real fan, as people will hear in the interview. Fantastic. All right. We have one more question, don't we? Uh, we do. Um, let me get to it here. I was so fascinated. Uh, See, I mesmerized you, didn't I? I lost I? track here. <laughs> Have you uh, ever been approached to, um, by a, net, a producer or a network to favor one fighter while you're yeah, that, calling it? I thought that was a fascinating question. And 
and I know people when they watch, you know, they think they they have their opinions on whether, and sometimes uh, in life, sportscasters are not objective. <laughs> so it comes as a shock to people I know. Um, but but uh, I I'm going to answer this question, and some people are probably not going to believe me. I have literally never been asked to favor fighter A over fighter B uh, ever by a network or more importantly, sometimes when you do pay-per-views, not always, but sometimes when you do pay-per-views, you are hired by a promoter. They're the ones that hire you, they pay you, they're responsible for you doing it. And it is easy under those circumstances, I would think, or not easy, but potentially possible, that somebody announcing could feel some sense of uh, fealty to uh, a fighter that that promoter may be pushing or, or has as in their stable. Uh, I've never felt that, uh, never felt that it was, it, it was part of my role to do that. Uh, and and was never asked by a promoter to do it, which that would be the one instance where you would think they might uh, give you a strong hint or suggest something. And my approach to doing fights when I was hired in that instance was exactly the same as it was when uh, when I'm hired by a network uh, to do it. And and I literally have never been asked to do it. And uh, I'm glad of that because I I, I would not. And and I. I don't feel that's appropriate, of course. And, um, I, you know, while I've made mistakes in my broadcasting career and maybe subconsciously talked about one fighter more than the other, which you can easily do, uh, or given one fighter more credit for doing something than another one, uh, I assure you it was accidental or a mistake on my part as opposed to something deliberate. And, um, and that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, we had a chat with, in uh, our last episode, chatting with Joe Goosen, where he talked about how I stressed to him so much when he was getting into broadcasting that the most important thing was to be fair to both fighters. You certainly strive for that. And if you fail, and there have been times when I've listened to broadcasts and I realized I, I failed a little bit in that attempt. I'll give you an example. Uh, when Pauli Malinaji fought Adrian Broner, uh, there was a lot of acrimony going on uh, b between them uh, before those fights. And Broner had already, in private meetings, been, let's say, less than cheerful to me, okay? <laughs> so there was that going on. So I had my, my compatriot fighting him. <clears throat> I had him not being as pleasant as uh, would be hoped for to me in a private meeting for no reason at all, I should point out. Uh, and here I was announcing this fight and I will tell you what I subconsciously did. I subconsciously bent over backwards to make sure I was fair to Adrian Broner. And in doing so, it's one of the few fights I can, one of the fights I can honestly say this happened. I did a disservice to Pauli Malignaggi. Uh, I wouldn't say, I, I, I'm not saying I was blatantly favorite, showed blatant favoritism to Broner, but 
I definitely think that I, I didn't call that fight as well as I might have with the commentary. And I don't think I gave Pauly uh, the right credit for certain things he did. Um, it just, because I was so busy bending over backwards to make sure I was fair. And I admit that that was, and I apologized to Pauly. I told him, I said, you know, I don't know. I mean, he was very gracious about it. Um, he did hit me with the right hand, but I you know, <laughs> deserve that. No, he didn't do that. Uh, well, Al, one case where I just watched this morning where with Showtime, Floyd Mayweather was a Showtime fighter going up against Pacquiao. And I watched that and you were very right down the middle, even though it's in your economic best interest in Showtime for Mayweather to win. Yeah, I, I, those are, that to me is, a perf is the example of what you, you don't, you just never should do that as a broadcaster. You, your, your mission is to call a fight. And, and I've approached every fight, whether it's a six rounder, that you know is way deep on the undercard to Pacquiao Mayweather. I I just think it's important to approach them exactly the same way. And honestly, I know people will probably say, "Oh, you know, you're gilding the lily by saying this." To me, there is no A and B side. It doesn't exist when I'm preparing to do a fight. I'm making my notes, and here's a piece of paper. On this piece of paper over here, you know, I've got. On this one, I've got the, the notes with the one guy. On this one, I got the notes with the other guy. I want to make sure I have a lot of notes over here and a lot of notes over there. And that those, those notes, I'm going to look at them equally during the fight. Yes, if one fighter is dominating the action, I'm going to be talking about that fact. But I want to look at those equally. And I don't care how famous one fighter is and how you know, unknown the other one might be. Uh, I'm going to take that approach. And that's, I think, the way to do it. So um, we, uh, I, please keep sending us your questions uh, on uh, Twitter. Uh, I enjoy answering them. And I enjoy uh, you guys sending them. And I hope uh, you find it interesting and provocative from time to time. These were great and questions. And hopefully John Cusack can keep marching forward. And maybe, Al, he can get into your movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. I can. I think I can sneak him into a part somewhere. Yeah. John, thanks to John for for sending that uh, uh, that question to us, as well as everybody else that did it. Uh, we have been promising you an interview with Michael Buffer, and now we will deliver. Uh, Michael, of course, a Hall of Fame ring announcer who started uh, in the business uh, back around 1981 when I was doing the. Uh, top-ranked boxing series, though he will point out in the interview that he did have one assignment prior to that, uh, which he tells a colorful story about. Uh, and so here is our chat with Michael Buffer. So joining me now, uh, my good friend for many, many years, and of course, an iconic figure in the sport of boxing, uh, Mr. Michael Buffer. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Al, really. Good to, good to be uh, together with you once again. I know we don't get to see each other that much because you're we're traveling in different boxing circles and only occasionally when we are at some kind of event or something specific do we get to say hi. Unlike the old days when you were starting your your career and I was just in the embryonic stages of mine, we literally saw each other every week about 48 weeks out of the year, didn't we? <laughs> Almost every week. It was amazing. And and it wasn't just Vegas and Atlantic City. It was uh, French Lick, Indiana, <laughs> Wheeling, Wheeling, West Virginia was one of my favorites. Uh, the Blackout, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The Blackout and Wheeling, the lights went out. And 
and in the dark, I was telling, uh, I was telling jokes because my mic was still hot. <laughs> <laughs> this, of uh, course, was the, the top-ranked boxing series on ESPN, which uh, Michael joined uh, not that long after we started. I got in there about maybe eight or nine months before, and uh, then Michael came on the scene. And you're right, th those shows, we would not only go to the, the um, Vegas and Atlantic yeah. City and other places, but we were everywhere. Yeah, it, it, it was great. You know, Kentucky, Indiana, Iowa, the Quad Cities. And, we uh, hit almost every state, I think, in the Union, just about, during the course it, of that. It, it, we didn't hit Alaska or Hawaii, but uh, we... No, we that's, we missed follow. those. Uh, and what, remember the cow pasture fights in uh, Carson yeah. City? Gardnerville, yeah, Gardnerville, Nevada. We had, they called it the Cow Patty Festival for the obvious reasons. It was yeah. in, a, uh, in a pasture. And that was one of them where one time uh, we did an open where I actually brought my horse up there to ride. And we started the open with Barry sitting on a fence and I rode away and then he, it was, it was hysterical. Uh, and you, you, of course, in that time for you, for your career, that was a beginning point for you. That was, and it was a, a pretty dramatic beginning point, wasn't it? Because, you know, sometimes uh, if you're a ring announcer, you toil, in places where you're not seen very much, you don't get much visibility, and you work your way to TV. Your beginning was on television pretty much at the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, right away. I, I, the very first thing I ever did, and it was, I, I was a disaster, but it was uh, when they had the Tuesday night fights on USA. Right. Alessi Promotions and uh, Brad Jacobs, who's, who's now you know, been with Top Rank for years, was the uh, coordinator and uh, what I did was I didn't know how a ring announcer got hired so I sent <clears throat> resumes to all the hotels in Atlantic City with a headshot because modeling back then is this James Bond headshot you know the tuxedo <laughs> and, I, and I sort of like suggested that the uh, I mean not even knowing what I was doing uh, that the image of a hotel casino would be uh, with with my look you know would be enhanced and I didn't know I was going to be a, a disaster in that first show anyway Toby Berlin was the entertainment director at Playboy Hotel Casino that's where Alessi had most of their fights she recommended that they just lose this guy look at this picture and you know I came in and flop sweat and screwed up a lot of cars <laughs> but uh, six months later I got another chance and it was with a uh, a top rank show on CBS. And uh, once I got my foot in the door, Aram and uh, Akbar, our buddy Akbar Mohammed, right. started using me in, in every show. And Frank Gelb was the uh, on site promoter for all the East Coast uh, shows. And, um, and it turned into a, a crazy thing because, you know, then out, top rank boxing was the number one show right. on ESPN. Yep. And was. they didn't have this huge amount of programming, so they would rebroadcast the fight six, seven, eight times a week. And so we were on all the time, yeah. and, and it kind of like really took off. Plus, it was great for the fighters, uh, Donald Curry, and I, I think Mancini going back even before I started, you know, uh, was there, and, and just a lot, of great, uh, a lot of great fighters got recognition, and they became the Saturday and Sunday afternoon fighters and then hbo 
Yeah, that was the proving ground we had on that show of young fighters who were kind of making their way to becoming yeah. champions, and it was a guy named a guy named Mike Tyson was. Uh, yes, was indeed. Yeah, did he he fought for a title, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah, at some point. Yeah, uh, pretty, had a pretty good career, I think. Yeah, he may have he may have fought for a title, and then of course for you, um, vaulted you into you know doing all the mega matches and all the. Uh, and everything when you what was the point at which you said to yourself okay this career is definitely going to be my thing uh what i'm assuming it was early in that top rank uh portion but when did you know it was going to take off to the point where it was going to be a, a serious life-changing thing for yeah you? yeah probably uh the middle to late 80s uh, especially in the late 80s when, when the Tyson fights uh, just became monster fights on HBO and, and uh, just put uh, the heavyweight division on the map again. And um, then it was it, it really got insane. I mean, it, it became like a, a decent payday for me and it was a full-time job. Yeah, that was pretty remarkable. And you, you know, what people, a lot of things, pe something people may not so much know about you is, um, you have, and working with your brother, Bruce, who helped you a lot with, with the marketing and all the rest of it, and yeah. you guys were very canny about what you did. You worked day and night on creating opportunities and doing things a little bit out of the box to try and figure things out. I always admired that about your whole process because it, it you know, I admire that kind of entrepreneurial thinking, and you guys were exceptionally good at it. Yeah. It um, you know, what happened with Bruce was um, he was like a, a, a businessman type of thing. And, 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 and I started getting these calls to do, uh, can you do the opening for our, our, the Cowboys versus uh, Green Bay in a playoff game? And, and so, you know, the worst thing in the world is, and you've experienced this, I'm sure, or like earlier in your careers, you have to have an agent. You have yeah, to have some. You can't talk to somebody and say, well, I'm worth five grand just to walk through the door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, who's this guy think he is? You know, <laughs> yeah, you have to have somebody say, yeah, well, he gets 20 grand and work it down to that five grand, you know, so. Yes, right. Uh, it, so I needed somebody to start taking all these phone calls. And, and uh, so I, I approached him with the idea and he had some ideas and uh, the, the trademark was finally, I finally had the right representation. I'm sure my wife will get that to uh to to get it done so uh, you're gonna get that honey that's an important phone call could who yeah. knows who could be calling yeah. we could be viewing a deal right now <laughs> and uh so it, it just started working out well and uh it literally just became such a full-time job as you know the first uh, three four years of doing it it was part-time even though i was doing like maybe 20 25 shows in the east and then uh, Top Rank approached Aram and said, or pardon me, ESPN approached Top Rank and said, can, uh, can you start using Buffer for, for all the shows, right. you know, in LA and Las Vegas and that sort of thing. Then, then, it, really, uh, then it really took off. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah, you know, um, the, once the big fight started, and of course you became a, a, a hallmark at it, 
I know that you're a true boxing fan, and I, I always got the sense that one of, while they're, of course, associated with all this, there's, there's many rewards, and there's the glamour of the event, and we've all, we all, God knows, we all knew how to have fun on the boxing circuit, um, sometimes maybe too much, but the, the fact is, the, the thing that drove us all, and, it drove, and, and I think drives you as well, is you are a true boxing fan, and you appreciate the sport, and you appreciate the boxers. Yeah, I, I, big sports fan, period, but I just loved, uh, I love the sport, and, and I, and I'm really big on uh, enjoying the history of the sport, you know, because yeah. I was a fan, you know, I, at my age, I was a fan, I actually saw Sugar Ray Robinson in the last stages of his career live on a little really? black Really, I didn't know that, we never discussed that, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, I was very upset when, uh, you know, the, the fights with Fulmer and- Oh, uh, I hated that draw. Wasn't that the worst thing ever? I, I was uh, in junior high school and man, that just killed me. I can remember that just, you know, and, and I remember like, what kind of fighting is this? You know, yeah. <laughs> Fulmer, it was very effective. He was a good yeah. fighter, a great Hall of Fame fighter. And you know, one of the great things about being a fan is you have guys you love and then all their opponents you hate. Right. And you hate them. I mean, you hate you hate yes. them. guys, right? And then through the years, such a yeah. blessing to get to meet these guys, and That's you know, right. I, I you know at the Hall of Fame, Carmen Basilio and his wife right. and Dean Fulmer and that, yeah. and they were and at charity events, and I love these guys. They're sweet guys. As a big Ali fan, I hated George. Now George and I keep in touch every week. You know, I mean, he's he's just the, the best guy ever, and. Uh, it's just crazy how that happens and evolves. You yeah, from, it's interesting. I'm still a fan, and I still have favorites, but I still I get a tear in my eye when I see the opponent uh, lose to my favorite guy because I just, I love them both, you know, and, and that kind of that association with boxing. And I, I think a lot of people don't know how really. I don't know if affectionate is the right word, but there's there's a great deal of respect among fighters for each other. Yeah, they can throw wolf tickets and they can say things before fights, and you think they hate each other, but there's always that moment where they go over and put their arms around somebody they just knocked out, or or you know, years later, uh, Holyfield and Bo can sit down in the same room and laugh with each other. You know, and it's just uh, crazy, but there there is a lot of camaraderie there among the fighters that I love. And, uh, but, uh, getting back to, uh, yeah, I'm a big, big boxing fan. I always love the sport. And, you know, this downtime that I have right now, uh, I've just been all over YouTube looking at some of the oldies again. And, and it's, yeah. it's great to be able to see that stuff that before you had to buy an eight millimeter uh, silent film and look <laughs> at it, which I did as a kid, I used to like, you know, look at Floyd Patterson and, and the different fights and no audio. And now as you get to see all this great stuff. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And this time did give all of us a chance to revisit history and, and look back at uh, great moments and, uh, and all the rest of it. Now, you, many, many years ago, you did a favor for me. And you'll probably remember this because it was so much fun. Those fight weekends were so much fun at Caesars Palace and all that. And I will never forget, you did me a favor. The first time I did my music show at Caesars Palace, you were nice enough to come, and people don't know this about you. You're a very talented man. You're a very good impressionist, and you you came and announced me and did three or four minutes of very fun impressions and 
to the people and people got a chance to see a side of you that they they had didn't know existed yeah that that was a lot of fun I, I, <laughs> we had I a got, good we had a good time back then we always had something crazy going on didn't we Oh, it, it was uh, it was crazy. That was like in in a lounge in Caesars. In, that was in the, yeah, nineteen the, at the, 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 the uh, Leonard uh, Hagler fight. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. And it would and those weekends that it's hard to describe people, isn't it? Uh, what the atmosphere was like back in that time uh, at Caesars and in Las Vegas. It was amazing. You you turn here and there. You'd, I mean, I'll, I remember that show. It's funny, all these celebrities there and everything. And and I remember all that time around all those fights. You would. It was just such an amazing electric atmosphere at those fights. It, it really was. I, you know, the, there's still uh, these great atmosphere for these big fights and everything. But there, there was something special about that that thing at Caesars and everybody had to arrive at the main. Uh, the main door, limo after limo, yes. and um, one of the greatest lines uh, I think uh, I think it was Akbar that might have said it was that it was before a, a Tommy Hearns fight might have been it was a big Hearns fight. Hearns is fighting somebody. It's, it's a big fight, and of course all the characters from Detroit are showing up with fur coats and hats and um, a girl in each arm and that sort of thing. And I, I think it was Akbar, and he said, uh, "Well, it's going to be safe to be in Detroit tonight." So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, it was. It was an amazing, amazing atmosphere. How has has there been any way in which uh, your craft is a very specific craft for ring announcing? Uh, one that, by the way, people think because it's in it's kind of shorter in duration than other things, they think that that there's not a huge amount of skill in doing it, but there's a massive amount of skill in doing it. And the people that do it extraordinarily well, like you and my good friend, Jimmy Lennon, Jr., uh, 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 you, you've honed it to a craft. Has, have you changed anything about the way you do it uh, or approach it over the years? Always, all the time. I, I, I really do. I, I'm my own worst critic and i I'll, I'll look at the older fights and just cringe yeah, uh, i do that too yeah can't even can't stand myself and uh um even today i'll still try to look for something that a little improvement a little less of this a little more of that just just little things maybe um for a while there i was like oh my god I'm, what am i doing what, what's with all the chatter and talking and, and trying to like add this and that and trim things back now, and one thing that uh, I think it drove uh, production crazy too, as well as, well as the announcer. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but it used to be we had to introduce the entire commission. Right. And you'd have like, and, and, and I think it more or less started in New Jersey where, you know, the Honorable Jersey Joe Walcott <laughs> Commissioner and, you know, and then all the board members and the commissioners and chairman, executive director, four doctors, a timekeeper, <laughs> alternate timekeeper. I mean, it's a, and I actually remember 19 and 20 introductions oh. before, before the fighters. Wow. I mean, That's good. And so uh, Ross Greenberg was executive producer with HBO, and we were doing a big show in Vegas, and I, I forget what it was. And I said, listen, Ross. I'm going to just introduce the chairman and the executive director 
and I'm not going to introduce that that four member board members and this and that. And we're you know it's just we're just killing the crowd. We're killing the audience. And I say, but when they approach me on it, which they I know they will, I'm going to say that you. I came from uh, you. I came from New York, you know, and HBO. He's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and man, sure enough. I literally was in the men's room and the, the, the chairman of the commission came in and said, I've got a lot of mad uh, guys out there that weren't introduced. I'm like, Oh, I'm like, you know, I'm like, Oh, <laughs> uh, didn't you, didn't New York, didn't you talk to New York? Didn't uh, HBO tell you, I, you know, they said they would. And I passed it. And of course they never, they could never call up and say like, you didn't introduce us. You know, so it kind of like was that turning point where I could, yeah. You know, just keep trying to trim the fat and and get to the fighters. They're the stars of the show, and uh, that's uh, it was just crazy. Just all these little things you do, but yeah, I, I always try to uh, not try to change, but try to be better. Yeah, make sure everything's uh, the way you want it, and tweak it a little bit and stuff. I I, I think yeah. a lot of people, you know, uh, in our business or in 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 the public eye, I think it's essential because you can easily fall into bad habits or do something. I'm, I, you know, I, I actually am surprised sometimes when I talk to sportscasters who say they don't watch their work and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, you should at least pay attention to it because you yeah. can easily slip into habits and do things that are not appropriate. Yeah. The best advice I ever got was after uh, one of the shows we did at the country club. Remember we went to Reseda, Reseda a few country times? club. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, I met a guy named uh, Jody Berry, who who was a big fight fan. Actually, used to box as a as a fighter out of Kentucky, and now he was like a, a singer and showbiz guy, and kind of retired at the time. And we had a few drinks, and he you know he had the Clark Gable mustache and custom made jewelry and French cuffs and like just a great guy, but a showbiz guy. And he said to me, he said, Buffer, when you say let's get ready to rumble, shut the f up. I'm like, Jody, what? Oh. He, said, he said, shut up. Because I used to just go, 12 rounds, of, uh, let's get ready to rumble, 12 rounds of the boxing for the heavyweight. I, you know, I just like, I, I wasn't trying to call attention to myself, but I was trying to right. set up the introduction to the stars, the fighters. And he said, just, just shut up. People want to react. It was like the best advice That's I ever It really made just a huge difference. That's fascinating. And, and look, it came from somebody just that you happened to come across it wasn't like some uh, somebody that you hired to consult with or whatever just somebody that gave you some advice yeah and another little one was uh i used to say uh the fighters are ready whatever in a sense and i'd go ladies and gentlemen and then i'd hit it with let's get ready to rumble and i thought that was my wife christine said to me about 10 years ago she said make that ladies and gentlemen a little bit bigger and sure enough, she was right. I, you know, I, I can look at it now, and instead of saying, "You know," I was trying to, be, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> let's get, you know, she said, "Ladies and gentlemen, like hit it big." You know, I'm like, okay. So there's two really great moments from, yeah. You just never know the source, and you look at it and say, "Yeah, they were right." What a joy to visit with you. It's fun to get to discuss in long form some things that, uh, and we barely scratch the surface. Sometime I'll bug you again to come back and. Uh, we well, we'll, to, we'll do one episode out where all we'll talk about is Wheeling, West Virginia, French <laughs> Lick, 
I mean, those days were absolutely insane. Well, I the one thing we could count on during those the, those visits, because as you pointed out, we went to places where it's not like they had boxing every week. The Mouseketeers. Uh, which one? The Mouseketeers. The Mouseketeers, yeah. Strap. That was Bruce the Mouseketeers, famous opponent who had all these guys that drove around the United States in cars as opponents, which was crazy. Yep. Only in boxing could that happen. And all these places boxing all the, place, the, all the welter, time, so things happen. The, the welterweight, Buck. Um, a, a Buck. Uh, Two hundred. Buck two hundred wins. Two hundred wins, yeah. or one ninety, or something. I mean, incre incredible. He wasn't a bad fighter, Buck Smith. He was a good fighter. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was crazy. We had a, there was a lot of a lot of nutty things. I did. I saw a video where he. I was interviewing after a fight. Some guy put it on Twitter. And we were talking about the fact that the very day of the fight, he played wiffle ball with us in <laughs> the day of the fight. He was out there with all of us playing wiffle ball. I'm like, really? <laughs> and I remember in Wheeling going down to the dressing room to get like, I was very, I made sure I had to get everything right for ESPN. And um, uh, we would have fights that weren't on the air. So I'm asking these guys, and I had to introduce us, but so I'm like, okay, and you're in the blue corner, and what color trunks are you wearing? And he turns to his other guy and says, what, uh, what color trunks are you going to wear? Uh, you wear the red ones tonight, I'll wear the green ones. They were fighting each other. Yes. That was below <laughs> television. Yeah, yeah. I mean, That's no, funny. Crazy. Well, Michael, well, thank you. Thank you so okay, much. Okay, wait, I've got to ask you one thing real quick. Oh, go ahead. I think it was you interviewing a guy in the ring, and it was a fight in New England. And there were like some knockdowns and the referee uh, kept saying, and, and, and I, I believe it was you, and you were saying like, well, what about those knockdowns? And he kept saying, thems was slips. Oh, that was in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, we, it was, um, there was a fighter and I don't remember his name right now, but he was the hometown guy and he got knocked down four times. And they were all very legitimate knockdowns. There was like no question. Sal Marciano, who of course you know uh, from the top rank series and his fine work in New York, was, you know, he and I were interviewing the guy and I, I said, well, wasn't that a knockdown? He said, no, that was a slip. And then we'd show another one and we'd say, how about that? No, that was a slip. <laughs> Literally was not copying. And in fact, they wrote a story in the New York hey, Times about it. Them's, them's was slips. <laughs> Those was slips, yes. He was, he was, Mark Tabor was the referee. I just thought of his name. And the yeah, time that, was, he, that was a crazy. Kenny Bogner, was it? Kenny Bogner, right? He and. And your interview, you're, he yes. had all the fans in his corner, and they're all screaming and yelling. The fight's over, and he wins, and and he's got his, and, and he's nodding while you're talking, and you're you're setting up this whole thing for him to say. And his fans, a bunch, and they were all like toothless, crazy people from Camden or something, or or Trenton, or where was he from? Boom, boom, Bogner. Yeah, in New yeah. Jersey. Yeah, bang, bang, Bogner. And uh, he goes, he's nodding at you, and then you go for his reply, and he says. I didn't hear a fucking word you said <laughs> on the air. <laughs> so you turned I, to the I leaned in and, and I said, okay, I'll say it a little louder for you. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a funny moment. That's for sure. We had, we had some crazy ones and that was, that was pretty nutty. Oh my God. Well, thank Michael. Thank you so much. This has been a joy and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And uh, uh, I'm glad you're already back applying uh, your craft and we'll have a lot more of it coming up in the future. All right, you take care. Hi to Connie. Take care, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was our chat with um, Michael Buffer. Uh, very enjoyable. As you can see, Michael loves to reminisce about 
the past. And, and that story trip about Kenny Bang Bang Wagner, which was uh, that, he's, that he told, was told accurately, you know? Uh, there was, um, uh, I could not hear. And uh, when Wagner said that, yeah, I looked and I said, okay, I'm gonna say this a little bit louder and hopefully you will, uh, you will hear it. But that was so typical of the crazy things that happened on that top ranked boxing series. Well, you know, audio issues in a big arena, that, that stuff happens, but. Yeah, there. Oh, the people were screaming and yelling and he couldn't hear so. So that was fascinating. Anyway, we, uh, we're glad that you joined us for uh, this episode. My thanks to Tripp, of course, for his fine work and to Lee, our producer who helps us uh, put this on. And uh, we will see you on the next episode. Take care, everybody.